Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. This week I'm covering part two of the Barbara Stoppel murder. We're going to focus on Thomas Sofno for this portion. He was the man who was convicted of her murder. And one of the things that I did was I reached out to someone uh, to help me kind of fish through all the information and make the most sense of it. And so Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss is going to join us today. And she has a really wonderful podcast if you're interested in getting into maybe the scarier the scarier, more intimidating side of some of the issues that come up when we talk about true crime. So here's a taste of what you can expect if you tune into Ignorance Was Bliss. That's horrible. It's true. So strange. Usually. I can't imagine what that's like. Do you want to? That could never happen to me. It might. Lock him away. He's pure evil. Or insane. Or human. My name's Kate. I have worked as a forensic psychologist, as well as in prisons and as a crisis clinician. My job was to figure out who gets locked up and who gets a key. To find the humanity in inhumane situations. So, are you sure you really want to know? Yeah. Maybe. Because by the end of the episodes, you just might end up thinking... I felt better before I knew that. You can find me at IWB Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, sometimes Instagram, or you can email me at IWBpodcast at gmail.com. My name is Kate. My show is called Ignorance Was Bliss, and it comes about because... I have worked as a forensic psychologist as well as a correctional psychologist and crisis clinician. So that means I've shown up in court. I've worked in prisons and jails and psych hospitals, and I've also worked in emergency rooms and private homes. So I've sort of seen the spectrum. I feel like my job has always been about explaining why people do what they do in words that make sense to normal human beings instead of only speaking in jargon. It's pretty easy for me to usually understand why people end up on this side of a locked door or that side of a locked door, you need to be prepared and sure that you really want to know. Because, hence the title, Ignorance Was Bliss. Once you do know, you kind of can't unknow it. Yeah, didn't you feel better before you knew that? Or two podcasts today, buddies. So a little shout uh, yeah, out to them. Yeah, and that's been a great thing that, that Josh has put together. Josh Hallmark put together mm-hmm. two pods a day. And it's indie. Indie pods. Mm-hmm. Listen more, listen indie, right? And so that's been that's great right. fun to watch and listen to that and see my friends show up. It's been cool. I didn't do it. No. I was the only one that told the truth. I should have lied. I should have never told the truth. You? Thomas Sofano's introduction to the investigation began casually. At the time of Barb's murder, he was 28 years old and described as a Caucasian male, 6 feet 4 inches tall, 180 pounds, with brown curly hair, brown eyes, long sideburns, a mustache, a slim build, and wore gold-rimmed glasses. He was living in British Columbia and was visiting Winnipeg on the day of the attack, attempting to see his daughter Kimberly for Christmas. According to Andrew Michalajewski, retired sergeant detective and the author of Stoppel, the book, Sofno's relationship with his ex-wife Nadine was strained and she refused to allow him to visit with his daughter. Frustrated, Sofno dropped off Kimberly's presence at Nadine's sister and brother-in-laws, Diane and Alex Klein. And on a whim, he decided to drive to Mexico in his 1971 two-door light blue Monte Carlo. He left Winnipeg driving south, but soon reversed his spontaneous decision because he noticed that there was a pulling in the front end of his car. He subsequently went to have his vehicle serviced and learned that the caliper was seizing. It was then that he decided to return to BC after first stopping for a coffee at Tim Hortons on Portage Avenue. 
As he started out on his drive, he heard on the radio that a girl in a donut shop had been assaulted in Winnipeg. Having just been in a coffee shop there, he called his sister in BC and asked if people were looking for him in the event it was the same Tim Hortons. She advised him that they had not called. And I'm not clear about these events, to be honest. I don't know if I had just been at a coffee shop where nothing eventful happened and then found out later someone had been assaulted in a coffee shop, which I had no reason to believe was the one I was at. Would I call home in case the police wanted to talk to me? Probably not. Unless the police were asking for anyone who had been to a specific address, regardless of their experience, to please call. Other than that, I would see no reason to believe that they would already have identified me and be searching for me long enough to find my personal details and call my home. Even stranger, Thomas later stopped at Ryan's restaurant in Hope, B.C. and saw a poster of a missing girl, Verna Berkey. He believed he may have seen the girl in Winnipeg and subsequently called the RCMP who took a formal statement. In the statement, Thomas gave a Winnipeg address even though his permanent residence was in British Columbia. This prompted RCMP to forward a request for follow-up to Winnipeg investigators regarding Berkey's disappearance. The request landed on the desk of Sergeant Bill Vandergaff of the Winnipeg Police Department. Vandergaff was unable to locate soft-known Winnipeg, and since he had come from BC, he looked up his Winnipeg identification picture from 1977, and he found that it was quite similar to the composite drawing of the suspect. Sergeant Vandergraaff subsequently initiated an investigation. On February 16th, 56 days after Barb's murder, Sergeant Vandergraaff started interviewing several of Sofino's contacts in Winnipeg. They included his ex-wife, Nadine Sofino, Diane and Alex Klein, former girlfriend Jacqueline Haneke, and friend Cindy Coe. From this set of interviews, he discovered a few bits of odd information. Nadine Sofno felt that Tom fit the description of the composite drawing and oddly assumed without direction that she was being contacted regarding the Stoppel murder. She claimed he was capable of blowing up and was afraid of him, although he had never assaulted her in the past, and the conclusion of their phone call on December 23rd when he contacted her to arrange a time to see his daughter. They were both crying. The Kleins reported that Sofno went to their house at 3.30 p.m. to drop off Kimberly's Christmas gifts on the day of the murder. He left at 5 p.m. They described him wearing a long brown leather coat and another jacket underneath with brown dress pants. He had on tinted glasses and cowboy boots. They claimed he did have a mustache that day, and when asked about a cowboy hat, they were certain that he did not have one on when he dropped off the gifts. During their visit, he told them about how he was doing landscaping and he was self-employed. Another point of note was that they happened to see he had two $100 bills in his wallet. Remember, this is before the murder, so he wasn't stalking around a donut shop for a robbery because he was flat broke as they said. Also interviewed was Jacqueline Henke, Sofino's former girlfriend. The two had lived together on Mayfair in Winnipeg, just on the other side of the bridge from the Dominion Shopping Center. She recalled that he had a cowboy hat, which he bought in the summer of 1981, and he wore it regularly. Also of note, she recalled that he carried a knife and attended to the Dominion Shopping Center on occasion to eat at the McDonald's. More interesting to investigators, she recalled that she had seen yellow rope in his car. Hanky and her friend Cindy Coe both believe Sofino matched the description of the composite drawing, but they neglected to call police because they thought he was in BC at the time. So here comes trouble. Because Thomas resembles the composite, he was in Winnipeg the day of the murder, he regularly carried a knife and was upset that day because he wasn't able to see his daughter for Christmas, investigators began to consider Sofno a person of interest. More compelling, he had a BC connection, which may link him to the murder weapon. 
In a brutal twist of fate, it was determined that the twine was manufactured in British Columbia. One of the only pieces of concrete evidence in this case was the twine. And it was soon determined it was most likely manufactured by Powers Twine from Everson, Washington, and sent to companies in the Vancouver area. These distributors later sold it to BC Hydro for the purpose of being used as a shot line. As a result, investigators believed that the suspect had a British Columbia connection. This is not setting Thomas Sofano up for a comfortable conversation with Winnipeg police. However, if you keep in mind the confirmed timeline and consider what witnesses had already claimed, seeing the cowboy around the Dominion shopping area, he was there from late morning until 8.30pm or so on the day of the murder. So this case should have been setting off alarm bells. Who was where, really? Witnesses that saw the cowboy didn't know him per se, but they saw the hat and they described his characteristics fairly similarly. However, Thomas was known to the people who saw him. There was no witness uncertainty about who he was. They personally knew him. Now the case is placed in the hands of Vancouver detective Mike Barnard. On March 3rd, 1982, Barnard completed the initial interview with Thomas Sofno. His statement forwarded to Winnipeg investigators included the basic information of his build and eye color. Beyond that, the main information revealed was that he arrived in Winnipeg December 22nd at 1 p.m. He left Winnipeg December 24th at 4 p.m. and finally arrived back in Vancouver December 25th at 2 p.m. During that time, his indications were that he called his ex-wife and she wouldn't tell him where he could pick up his daughter. He couldn't reach her at home. He had called her parents to locate her. So, no luck there, he went to Diane and Alex Klein's home to drop off gifts for his daughter. Around 5 p.m. or so, he called his ex-wife again from a phone booth near downtown. They did speak, but no arrangements to see his daughter could be agreed upon. At that point, he drove around a little bit and went to have a coffee in Winnipeg's downtown. He recalled later going to another donut shop after attempting to visit a female friend that was in the St. Boniface area. This area is where the ideal donut shop was located. However, when asked what street it was located on, he clearly indicated that he didn't know the St. Boniface area very well and he wasn't really sure. He said the shop was at a Tim Hortons to his memory or like a Tim Hortons. He had no memory of who was in the shop or if there was a male or female staff member. One thing was certain. Coffee, no donut. He indicated having a blue tote bag and the bag was left where he was staying as he went about town. He didn't carry it around with him. Also, he said that he didn't wear his cowboy hat. It was in the car. Shown a picture, he admitted that the hats did look similar. When asked about his ex-wife's claim that he always carried a knife, he responded, I never carry knives, and if my wife said I did, she was lying. He went on to explain he could have been at the ideal donut shop around the time of the murder, claiming, I remember having a coffee at a shop, but I don't remember the exact address or name. The closing notes on the interview read, I'm willing to take a polygraph test regarding any questions to do with this girl's death. Thomas Sofno, March 3rd, 1982, at 1645. On March 10th, 1982, Sergeant Vandergraaff contacted Detective Barnard in Vancouver about the interview. Barnard commented that Thomas Sofno was cooperative and he appeared calm and unemotional, yet he observed him as rather strange. He also explained that he told Sofano that his prints were found at the scene, and he asked him where he thought they may have shown up. Sofano told him only on a cup and spoon. When Barnard said his prints were also in the washroom, Sofano flatly denied he ever entered the facilities and it was impossible. Thomas was very cooperative. He said he would be willing to do the polygraph, he allowed his hat to be seized and was photographed. As well, he allowed his vehicle to be searched. 
Barnard claimed that except for the hat, nothing significant was found. And in the discussion, he claimed that he believed Safno should be considered a possible suspect. The next day, a picture of Thomas Safno wearing his cowboy hat was put in with seven other photos of suspects. These photos were presented to witnesses Norman and Lorraine Janower. Five of the photos included people wearing cowboy hats and glasses, while the rest were not. Both witnesses selected Thomas Sofno out of the selected pictures. Their reasoning was rather strange. Lorraine claimed that if any, he'd be like this picture. While Norman said he knew the guy from somewhere, but didn't know why. This is very different than claiming, this is the man I saw at the Ideal Donuts. So the next day, March 12, 1982, investigator Sergeant Wayne Warwick and Ed Polishin joined Barnard and arrived at Thomas Sofno's home. When he was asked to go down to the Vancouver station, he was more than willing to come down and clear up any concerns that they had. He was happy to go down for an interview. What he didn't put together in the beginning was it was more of an interrogation that he was walking into. These were the days where these interviews were recorded for sound, but not videotaped. And handwritten notes were also an integral part of recording events in the room. Thomas is cautioned that his name has come up in the murder investigation of Barbara Stoppel, and he may be a suspect. And when reminded that he's not bound to answer their question, he openly tells them he's aware. In fact, in the notes it says he smiles and says, Oh yeah. The interview or interrogation goes basically as you can imagine from the details that you've heard in episode one. However, there are a few points that are of note. These points were key as the investigation was closing in on Thomas. There is definitely a timeline issue that is shining out of this conversation and it's dulled by the investigators as they begin to develop that tunnel vision that has rerouted so many famous and even more not famous criminal cases. The questions and answers go back and forth moving along the same string that holds the story together that we've followed so far. However, here are the most interesting points that caused major problems as the case evolved. Thomas was asked if he had luggage and he mentions the blue tote bag as well as his regular clothing and his hat. He's asked specifically if he had gloves, and he tells the investigators that yes, he did have gloves, the kind that are commonly used by many people when they need a cheap, purposeful set of work gloves, not dressy gloves. They're described as brown imitation leather with a braided style top with three lines that run across. Of course, since gloves were found by the suspect thrown over the bridge, they were going to question Thomas on this to see his response. One of the more kind of cringe-worthy exchanges is when Thomas is asked what he did after leaving a friend's place who wasn't home. This falls right in the 8 to 9 p.m. timeline, so there is serious alertness when this question is thrown out there. Thomas responds that he was driving around and stopped for a coffee where that chick got killed there. This is of note because he's under the impression that he was indeed at the specific shop where the murder occurred, but details of the shop later do not fit. The truly unfortunate thing about this answer is that years later it would still haunt Sofano. He deeply regretted his terminology. As much as we may sort of instinctively look back away with that kind of feeling, it's nothing compared to the regret and almost shame that Thomas would years later express. Continuing on, when asked which shop it was, he indicated a Tim Hortons, but then described it as in the little mall by the Domo gas station. He said he was not near that shopping center during the day, even when specifically asked about each store in the strip mall. Then later, he's asked about reading. Of course, this is because the cowboy was seen with a paperback during the day. Thomas responds that he doesn't read because it's depressing for him. He doesn't read books or newspapers. 
Then he's asked about music and his preferences of music because country music was mentioned by the cowboy according to witnesses. Here, Sofano pretty clearly indicates that he likes rock music more than country music, adding Johnny Cash anytime, no matter my mood. I'll add my own little high five moment right here. Thomas Sofano is then given a break and when Warwick returns, he gives him a formal charge and caution for murder, to which he responds, yeah, when asked if he understands. Then he's asked about working for Hydro. In Manitoba and in BC, he informs Warwick that no, he has never worked for Hydro, but he has done some construction jobs while living in Winnipeg. He's asked about carrying a knife and he again, for his second interview, is very clear and unflinching. No, no knife, not even a small one. He's then reminded he agreed to take a polygraph, to which he responds that he has changed his mind. He is then asked a series of questions about where the tote bag and gloves are now and if he suffers blackouts, has any psychiatric disorders or sees a psychologist, all a simple no. When asked about the murder, he's obviously straining. He's aware that the girl was 16. Her name is Barbara or Michelle. But then he goes on to say that she was short, that she was stabbed to death in the men's washroom and that she was robbed and beaten and then stabbed, all of which are incorrect. He said he didn't read any newspaper coverage or hear any other media regarding the case. Then something interesting is covered. Thomas claims that he left and went directly to his car, which was parked on the street. He parked 15 to 20 feet from the donut shop, and he specifically remembered being parked parallel to the street. The Ideal Donuts had a parking lot. The street that ran along that parking lot is a busy two-lane street that feeds directly to an underpass that leads to the downtown core. You could not park on that street. It's far more than a few feet away from the donut shop. This is when he is told that investigators think he's lying. He's lying about his car and where it was parked. He's told they feel he's responsible for the murder. This is where he finally comes around to telling them to charge him then, but he doesn't want to say any more until he sees his lawyer. He's then informed that he will be detained as a result of their current investigation and he may be charged in the interim, simply because of the fact that he puts himself at the scene of the murder at the time of the murder and he fits the description of the suspect scene leaving the scene. Sofno becomes quiet and hangs his head remaining mute. From there, he is moved to the Vancouver City Police cells. The next day, Constable Trevor Black is placed in a cell next to Thomas. He's undercover and under direction to steer the conversation to three specific subjects. Where the car was parked, about the lock on the door, and finally, if an open, closed sign was moved. Black was talking with Sofno, who told him he was arrested for stabbing a girl in a donut shop in Winnipeg. He denied killing anyone. He then claimed, I parked on the street and went in the donut shop and locked the door. Black tried to clarify, you locked the door? Don't you need a key? Then Sofno says, no, you just turn the... He goes on to say there were seven witnesses outside and a guy went in and found her on the floor. She was stabbed and died a week later. When Black asked him, did the witnesses see her get stabbed? Sofno was shrugging. I don't even know what donut shop I was in. I don't even know Winnipeg that well. They say it was in St. Boniface just outside of Winnipeg. This in itself is very telling. St. Boniface is the area of the Ideal Donuts, but as I've covered, it's right on the edge of the downtown core, right in the hustle and bustle of the city. In no way is this outside of Winnipeg. He maintained that he had nothing to hide, but his description of locking the door was a fine detail that really one would assume only the killer and possibly eyewitnesses would know. So, he was subsequently transported to Winnipeg while in custody. 
And then the media frenzy began. Now, police begin the laboring task of identifying Sofno and directly linking him to the murder. There's no physical evidence to tie him to this case, so on March 13th, they put together a lineup. Duerksen is brought in, the fellow that tussled with him on the Norwood Bridge. He's unable to identify the man that he saw that day. Sofno, although represented by lawyer Rocky Pollock, had willingly consented to the lineup. Two days later, three people were escorted in to identify the man they saw around the Ideal Donut Shop that day. Norman Janower, Marcel Glue, and Mildred King. Norman chose Sofno, saying that the height and weight looked right, and they walked the same. He asked Sergeant Ken Beener if it was the right guy, and he was told that yes, that was the suspect. Next, Marcel, who had driven by and witnessed the altercation on the bridge, was in, and he said with certainty that the man he saw on the bridge was not in the group. He was certain. Finally, Mildred came in and said the suspect was not in the lineup. She clarified later, maybe number seven, which was Sofno. She said he was the closest, but only from the right side view. So we have at this point four people unable to identify him positively. The most they can get confirmation on is Sofno is the closest of the group by height and weight, possibly by gait of walk which is odd because they don't walk very far in the lineup. And one may be from the right side if the lighting is right and the stars are aligned on a Tuesday at 1.13 kind of thing. Sofno is held in the remand center as the investigation continues and an odd thing happens. Duerksen took it upon himself to head down to the remand center on his own he wanted to see the man that was arrested. As he was spot-checked, it was discovered that Durkson had an existing warrant. Police detained him until he could arrange to have a fine paid for. It was for some previous small infraction of law, but as you can guess, he encountered Thomas Sofno in a chance meeting. Succeeding this, he suddenly was certain that he could identify the man that he saw the day of the murder. It was Thomas and he was willing to testify in court. It doesn't appear that anyone was suspicious that he was sure he didn't see the man in the previous lineup, but then was informed which person was suspected. And then days later, he's positive that that was the guy. This could involve some of the gap filling that I mentioned in the last episode. I don't think Duerksen was purposely being deceitful, I do find it odd that he went to the remand building because he wanted to see Thomas again. I don't think that's a common activity. Uh, could be a whole crap load of gap filling. I mean, seriously, do you remember putting your socks on this morning? Like, remember doing it, but do you have socks on? So can you remember it now? Can you describe it to me? And once you've described it, now your brain hears your own words. And so there's a feedback loop that happens between your mouth and your brain. The investigation continues rolling forward, and Sofno is asked to recollect his timeline from three months ago, which, as one could imagine, is very difficult. In order to verify his reported memory, police used phone records to reconcile his claims. Now, this can be the most concrete evidence so far in the case. It puts him in specific places at specific times, regardless of his memory. And Sofno's telephone calls were a problem. If, in fact, he did commit the murder, then there had to have been two similar-looking cowboys at the Dominion Center that day. Or he was, in fact, the one that was cited and his calls exclude him from being in the area at the time of the murder. The most significant call being the one from the Canadian Tire in Fort Richmond. It was the call at 7.52 in the evening, 
and it lasted about four minutes. That location is 20 minutes away from the ideal donuts. That was the most important call to his mother he has ever made. The case against Sofno came down to a few major points. He was enraged that he didn't see his daughter, and that was the motive for going out and committing murder. Regardless of identification issues, Dorkson would testify that he wrestled with Sofno on the bridge that night. Even though, initially, he could not identify him in the line, Lorraine and Norman Janower would also go on to identify him in court. There was a similarity between Thomas and the composite. Then, the unfortunate interviews where Thomas noted he may have been in the same donut shop at the time of the murder. Finally, he was in town from BC, linking him to the twine. He was known to wear a cowboy hat, and during his uncertainty of possibly blacking out, he had told the undercover officer in the next cell that he had locked the donut shop door. Then, the issue of jailhouse informants. Several of them. As noted by Andrew Mikhailajewski in his book, Stoppel, as far as direct evidence, there was none, and the motive itself was weak. It was Thomas's comments to the police and other convicts, and the twine used in the murder, which was never tested, but claimed to be only available from BC, where Thomas was residing. The defense maintained it was a case of mistaken identity, that Thomas was at the Canadian Tire store, too far away from the crime scene, so he couldn't have possibly committed the murder. Sofno would also tell the courts he had later driven to some hospitals and delivered stockings. At the time, no staff could identify him. Later, this was supported by witnesses. Sofno struggled with his own alibi because he was not aware of the confirmed phone logs. He wasn't able to offer up any evidence of his call from the Canadian Tire store. At the time of Sofno's trials, the Crown wasn't legally obligated to present the defense with its complete files. Only matters that were called into evidence had to be supplied. If they were in possession of information that may exclude the accused, they did not have to turn it over to the defense. Later, in 1991, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the Crown must provide the defense with all evidence, similar to the Brady Law in the United States. That law came down far too late for Thomas Sofno. The preliminary hearing set in motion a trial against Thomas Sofno in 1982, and this resulted in a hung jury. The second trial was in 1983, and he was found guilty. Sofno whispered, I didn't do it, to himself after the verdict was read. Later, the verdict was overturned by the Court of Appeal, so the Crown set out for trial number three. That trial in 1985 resulted in a guilty decision. That decision was again overturned on acquittal. The Crown appealed the decision, but the courts denied the appeal and entered the decision that there would be no further prosecution of Thomas Sofano. It was a cloud hanging over my head. I was still guilty. I was still considered a murderer. It wasn't until June the 8th, 2000, that I was exonerated by the Winnipeg City Police and the Manitoba Justice System. They apologized and um, they ordered an immediate judicial inquiry into what went wrong with the justice system, what went wrong at my trials, and the compensation phase. Because presently there's an ongoing investigation into the, uh, the suspect of the murder, we dealt with the compensation phase, and the evidence was eyewitness identification and jailhouse informants. I had it got to a point that my lawyer would come up to me and say, you confessed again. You give me the, the statement. I would look at it. I'd just sort of throw it back at him. I said, get this out of my face. I'm tired of this. Everybody's confessing. We have three people did testify in court, say that I confessed, told them I confessed to them. I had about nine or ten people say that I confessed to them. 
There was one person who had 33 charges of fraud dropped against him. He was given a voluntary departure to back to Hong Kong. And because the police just put him on the plane, they knew or the RCMP and immigration wanted him. But the police just put him on the plane. The other one, he was given $10,000 cash. He had his rape charge dropped. And he was given future considerations for future charges. Can you grasp that? That means he can go out into society and commit two crimes against society and the police and the Crown Attorney and the justice system of Manitoba would turn their back and allow this person who has had a rape charge dropped and previous rape charges against them commit two crimes because on the document it says future charges and future considerations, plural, not singular. So at least two charges he can commit against society. And we have another person who testified. He not only committed perjury, uh, other murder cases, and was charged and convicted of perjury, but he's, he was given, he wanted to, the reason he said that I confessed to him is he wanted to move to a minimum security prison. I was in a super maximum security prison. There are three who was called up by the Crown uh, to testify in court. There was at least a... I estimated that. I, I just can't recall. And as I say, like every time my lawyer came up, I threw this thing back, like, get this out of my face. I'm, don't waste my time with this. You know, why do you want to come up and see me? Now, Thomas begins the pleas for a review of the case. None was forthcoming. So under suspicions of getting away with murder, he was still suffering tremendous mental stress. He was pardoned on August of 1993. However, no review of the case was on the horizon. In the book Stoppel, an interesting note was made of a radio appearance that Sofno made, where he gave out the Premier's home phone number and requested that people who still believed he was guilty of murder call the Premier and ask for the case to be reopened. He went on to request that those who believed him innocent should call for a review as well. The response was so overwhelming that the Premier changed his number and the Winnipeg Police Service was pressured to review the case. There is later a report ordered, the Birchall Report, and in the end it claimed that Thomas was still a viable suspect in the murder. Later, a new police chief wants to identify the true murderer and orders an investigation into the cold case. Well, it was my persistence um, to get the, the case, to get DNA, to get the gloves that was worn by the killer tested for DNA, which in the past 15 years, it was always, I used to always get a letter saying, um, this case is, uh, is an ongoing investigation. Your request is denied. Wrote letters to the uh, Justice Department, to the federal government. Even the federal government says, well, I'm sorry, we do not intervene we only advise problems, so I suggest you get a lawyer and deal with it in a provincial matter. So, the a new chief of police came into power yep. in 1999. He ordered uh, a criminal analyst to look into this case. Based on that evidence of the criminal analyst, I was exonerated. It was the evidence of 1982 that the police had at that time that exonerated me. DNA evidence was not a factor when I was exonerated. I'm presently going under a judicial inquiry right now, as I said, in a couple more, in a, in a week, it'll start dealing with the investigation and the trials. And at that time, then we'll see how the fingers were put on the scales of justice and just sort of putting it down a little bit. For coverage of this investigation, it would really enlighten you to read the book Stoppel by Andrew Michalajewski. You can read this book online for free, and I've included a link in the notes. I highly recommend you do read it for a fuller understanding of everything that was uncovered. I have used this along with multiple sources to gather notes for this case, but I found the read entirely compelling. In the book, we learn that the case was almost hinging on the only direct evidence, the twine used to murder Barbara. The twine's origin was not investigated sufficiently. A test costing $100 would have revealed what was learned later. 
The twine was made by a company in Portage La Prairie, a city in Manitoba. There was no connection to the murder weapon in British Columbia. It was made and readily available right in Manitoba, where the murder occurred. By the late 90s, increasing public pressure forced the Winnipeg Police Service to reinvestigate the Sofino case. It found that Tom Sofino unequivocally did not kill Barbara Stoffel. Thomas Sofino was not responsible for this crime. There would also be a provincial apology and a call for a judicial inquiry to determine what went wrong. Another piece of very damning evidence came from Thomas himself. He was reported as saying that he could have been at the Ideal Donuts on 49 Goulet around the time of the murder. The issue arose, however, that Detective Barner didn't have any record of verbatim statements. And Thomas signed the statement without even reading it or having an attorney with him. Also, Barnard indicated to Thomas that his fingerprints were in the donut shop, specifically in the washroom which Sofno denied ever using. It seemed to have begun his unfortunate questioning of his memory and the belief maybe he blacked out or something because he didn't use the washroom. However, he was led to believe his prints were there. Of course, they never were. They constantly said there are seven witnesses who identified me at the donut shop uh, as being the one leaving and that I blacked out. I did, you know, something psychologically wrong with my mind or, or that I did it. I believed I killed her. Ironic, isn't it? False ca- confessions happen all the time. Because you start to doubt yourself, you believe in the police, you don't believe the police would lie to you, especially when they provide some sort of backup or evidence underlying their theory. And generally, you doubt yourself more and more and more. And if you get someone, say your cellmate, who is sort of whisperingly continuing those same sorts of questions and you're just like I guess I don't even I guess here's how it happened and I guess maybe I did this part and you start to you don't even know whether you're fully saying this is what happened when I was somewhere or this is what they say happened and you get more and more confused and again there's that confirmation bias and you know to me eyewitness testimony and confessions are like the weakest of all possible testimony. But it absolutely happens. It's easy to shake. If someone's already thin-skinned, for instance, with a history of interpersonal conflict and having a hard time getting along with people, we just have all sorts of biases and assumptions and misunderstandings and it's times of high stress. So eyewitness testimony is terrible and confessions are not very reliable to me. If it doesn't match the evidence, ah, I struggle. This interview had led to Thomas being met by Winnipeg police. That interview haunts Thomas Sofno even today. It was very lengthy, and everything Thomas said wasn't written down. He also felt he was being broken down psychologically, and this was compounded by a strip search that happened during the interview and is not proper police procedure. And later, at his public inquiry, the Winnipeg Police Service was condemned for this action. Thomas had already garnered doubt about his memory from the apparent fingerprints that he left in the washroom. When he was told that witnesses saw him in his brown cowboy hat, none had, of course, and most of the witnesses that mentioned the hat swore it was black. Then, the twisting motion that was repeatedly suggested by police inches from his face. They kept showing him the motion of the lock engaging, so later, Thomas mentioned he did that when he apparently did the murder. Later, Justice Peter Corey concurred that there were omissions in the statement, and the worst was being the demonstration of the lock by investigators. He described this as deliberate or grave carelessness. 
As for the motive, according to Daryl Flamond, who drove with Thomas to Winnipeg, Thomas was in good spirits on the way to Winnipeg, and he was excited to see his daughter. Thomas was at the Canadian Tire, and it was verified by telephone records, and never would have made it to the donut shop by the time witnesses indicated the killer was inside. Not to mention, being upset that he could not see his daughter doesn't suggest that he would race across town and murder a 16-year-old waitress at a donut shop that he didn't even know. This is irrational, so there is no motive. The investigation also looked at the witness statements. John Dirksen had identified the person he tussled with on the bridge, and the man he chose looked nothing like Thomas or even the composite. This false identification was not shared with the defense because it was not presented at trial. During the last investigation, he admitted to fabricating the event of taking a cab to look for the cowboy. He had lied in all three trials to make himself look better and to cover for his irrational action of just going home. Surprisingly, no one in the initial investigations checked to verify his lie with the cab company. Dirksen confessed that he was told by police who the killer was after the lineup. He also recalled the officer was reamed out for telling him who Sofno was. John wanted to be the hero, but he was fed to the wolves during a later inquiry into Thomas's wrongful conviction. He was made a villain for admitting to the lies and his claim of being told by police who the suspect was fell on deaf ears. It was because he simply was labeled a liar. Andrew Mikhailajewski was one of the main investigators running the review, and he stated in his book that he saw Dirksen as a good person who was caught up in events and agendas that were way over his head. He did eventually tell the truth and helped clear an innocent man in the end. The next witnesses, Lorraine and Norman Janower, were reviewed. Lorraine admitted it was easy to pick out Thomas in the original lineup because he was so different from the rest. When Andrew inquired about the composite and photos helping identify Thomas, she recalled that they helped her identify him and that she felt she may not have been able to recognize him in court without them. Finally, she was claiming certainty that the man that came into the Boots drugstore and asked for twine at 5.15 the day of the murder was the same man she saw leaving the donut shop at 8.30. Given it's been proven that Thomas was at the Kleins, evidence is pointing further away from Sofano. Norman claimed when he viewed the same photos as Lorraine, he stated he recognized Thomas Sofano from somewhere but he couldn't say how. This is not a positive ID on anyone or anything. When he later saw the live lineup, again featuring Sofano, he picked him out, but saying he was only about the height and weight. He was about the height and weight, and he looked to Biner for affirmation. Biner affirmed he did in fact pick the man they were investigating. So that gap filling we covered last week may be shining through here but no positive ID was made by Norman until after Biner tainted his ability to identify the man. Well, sure, because he just saw him and now he sees him again and his brain goes, yeah, 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 you've seen this guy before. And the brain is not very good at remembering when and under what circumstances did you see this guy before. The brain is just sort of okay at remembering yes or no. The next witness, Mildred King, had viewed the live lineup on March 15, 1982. She clearly said she could not identify anyone in the lineup, and when asked if she was positive, she said one word, yes. On her way out, she asked to see the five males again, and then responded she couldn't swear, but that number seven was the closest, but only from the right side view. Neither the police nor the Crown Council turned over the ID notes, showing the weakness in the identifications shared by all witnesses. If the jury was made aware, it's unlikely they could have convicted Thomas. Well, to me, 
yeah, they're, they're, they're trying, you know, there's not malice there. They're trying to help. They want to help. They want to be able to identify this horrible person. And if they sh- they're shown a lineup, the assumption is my guy's in this lineup. So find which one it is. How certain are you? Oh, crap. I'm not very certain, but uh, they really need somebody to be certain. So I'm going to say this guy, but at the same time, because I'm not certain, I'm going to hedge it a little bit. I'm going to qualify my answer because most of us, we assume the police are basically good guys. And, you know, they usually are, but they suffer from these sort of confirmation biases and errors that we know about. And the problem is that when a police officer is wrong, that wrongness creates big, bad problems. Then, on to the jailhouse informants. Andrew Michalajewski indicated that he had little interest in reviewing their allegations, and he wished them all a short life. He said their claims only suggested that investigators were so desperate that they resorted to liars, thieves, and rapists. Later, an investigation by the Fifth Estate did a segment on the Crown Counsel, George Dangerfield, who had convicted Thomas Sofano, James Driscoll, and Kyle Unger. He freely admitted in inquiries that he did not look for supporting evidence in informants' claims, and he failed to disclose the terms of agreement with those informants with the defense counsel. His reasoning was that he could not remember why he did not follow up on those issues. One informant, unsatisfied with his payout, even threatened to go to the press and revealed that he made up his testimony. Although Dangerfield was later under the threat of legal persecution just for those oversights, nothing came to fruition. However, his attitude about the position that he left three known innocent men with serious convictions can be heard through his testimony at those reviews into the history at the Crown's office. Well, I haven't spent my entire life mulling over this case. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm sorry he put all that time in in prison, but I didn't intentionally try to get him into prison. I didn't intentionally do things to damage his chance to, to acquit himself. This was one of the most devastating revelations for Thomas Sofano. Still dealing with serious PTSD, he recalls the unbelievable number of informants used in his case and the arrangements made to massage their testimony. Finally, the last factor that was the nail in the coffin for an innocent man is the issue of tunnel vision. The final investigation into the cold case revealed that all there was remaining in the case was a man in Winnipeg resembling the composite had murdered Barbara Stoppel. The police zeroed in on Thomas Sofano and fostered the ends justify the means attitude. Mikhail Lajewski outlines this as noble cause corruption and states that it is in direct conflict with what is expected from the police or the Crown's office. In the end, the Honorable Justice Corey said in his summation regarding Sofano's investigation that the actions of police and the numerous non-disclosure issues provided a breeding ground for tunnel vision. Well, and cops expect humans to function more logically than humans often function. Like, as soon as someone seems too helpful, a cop will get suspicious. If a person seems not helpful enough, a cop will get suspicious, especially in the 80s. In the 80s, you know, anything forensic psychology was seen as like, woo, science, what are you doing? That doesn't make sense. And, I mean, still now, frankly, a lot of cops think psychology is bullshit. What that sort of suggests to me is that, you know, here's somebody who loosely resembles certain aspects of it and he's behaving in ways we don't quite get. And all of it makes him a little more, a little more, a little more suspicious. And if here's somebody who doesn't respond the way we expect him to when he's sitting across the table from us, okay, now we're really suspicious. Now, you know what? We're going to arrest him. We're going to follow this through. And once an investigator believes he has his man, especially in 70s, 80s time frame, man, shaking him off that belief is hard work. Less than six days into the review, 
Sergeant Mikhailajewski knew for certain that Thomas Sofno was innocent, so the lines were drawn there. It didn't help that many of the original investigators had told them of rumors in the department years earlier that the police had gotten the wrong guy. Thomas was out of prison and had his wish for a review to investigate and round up the real killer. But the cost on a wrongly convicted and previously incarcerated man had already made its mark on him. Well, prior, uh, just to set you back a little bit, there was um, an agreement by the Manitoba government and the Justice Department because I was wrongfully convicted and because I fought for justice for so long that it was obvious and you can just, it was visibly obvious that there was something wrong with me. They agreed to pay for counseling, psychologists, psychiatrists, anyone for my, myself, for my family, to go and to go to, for counseling and just to get our lives back in order and, and get us on the right track. That environment is brutal and unforgiving. Beyond the bitterness of being wrongly convicted, the experience of incarceration on its own is a Herculean effort to get past. The idea of incarceration on what it has on people, it almost doesn't matter. Almost doesn't matter whether you're guilty or innocent. Of course, it does to an extent because of just the basic insult to your own life and the unfairness, the injustice of it all. But in terms of your internal reaction to being incarcerated, it doesn't really matter whether you're guilty or innocent. How you're going to react to being incarcerated is its own thing. Incarceration is an incredibly traumatic experience. You can't get up and leave if there's a fire. You are trusting people that don't even look at you as a human being. Cops, basically what they are, corrections officers, really can't. As a, as a CO, you can't interact with these people, with these, let's say men. As men, as humans, you can't do it. There are too many of them and too few of you, so there's not time. And you have to do inhumane things to them that get in the way of your ability to treat them like a human in the other times. It is not natural for one man to lock another man up. It's not natural to insist that you stand up out of your bed at 2.30 in the morning to step out and have breakfast because this is when we can most easily give you breakfast. It's not normal to look at someone and say, no, you cannot see a doctor. I don't care that you're sick. Ask tomorrow. Those are not natural human interactions. And if you're doing that all day, which is those are the kinds of things that a CO has to do, you, you just, you lose your ability to see these people as people because otherwise you lose your mind. You know, there's just no way you can keep going to work doing that. So COs have it. They do have it tough. It's a hard job. Because it's hard for any of us to look at another human being and stop seeing a human being. You're not just treating them like animals. You have to treat them like numbers. They're just numbers. There's no emotional connection. I don't love them. I don't hate them. They're just numbers. And I have to move them out and I have to move them back in and they have to go here at this time. And they're just numbers and they shuffle around. And you can't connect with them, but you're surrounded by them. That's really hard. It's a really lonely job. So as an inmate, for starters... You are relying on these corrections officers to save your life in the event of a catastrophe or illness or fight. But you're also dealing with them dehumanizing you day in and day out. Then you look around at the other inmates around you and there are these power struggles, but the reality is there's no power to be had. You know, aside from the occasional breakout, there's no power to be had and they're all treated miserably and so and it doesn't matter whether you're guilty or innocent because you're all treated pretty much the same and so 
however you're going to react to incarceration is pretty much how you're going to react guilty or innocent, I think. Because it's just who you are. And some people, the way I refer to it, if you want to get all technical, is how easy is it to shake his tree? You know what I mean? Some people have a really strong, solid sense of self. And they're the ones who are able to look at a crisis and take a breath and figure out what has to be done. And they're ones who are able to think through the panic quickly and... They're ones who are able to recognize what really is a threat and what is not a threat. And because that simple act of not being overreactive actually makes a lot of people less likely to threaten them. Here's a guy who's a sapling. You talk about shake his tree. You could bend the top of that tree to the ground and let go and he'll shake both ways. You know, that here's someone who gets so upset when he can't see his kid on the day he wants to see his kid even though nobody told him he could. He gets so upset that what does he do? I says, I'm going to drive to Mexico. Is that proportionate? No, somebody shook his tree. Prison for him is a daily trauma because there you can't trust anybody. But he's going to be an easy mark because other people get real good. I mean, the best profilers I ever met in my life were prisoners because they learn Who's an easy mark? Who's a hard mark? Who can I shake down for, you know, to convince him that he's got to pay me protection money? Whose commissary can I get? Who can I beat up? Who can I convince to stand guard while I do, you know, break the rules behind the curtain? Whatever. You know, there's, they learn very, very quickly who the easy marks and who the, the who, who, whose tree can I shake and whose tree can I not? I mean, even if he was in prison alone, you know, no one around for miles. It's going to shake his tree because they're not looking at me like a person. I don't know how to cope. I would say as much excited, but also upset, genuinely upset about this girl getting murdered. And he might have been near it because he was already upset. And here this is worse. And so if that upsets him, let me tell you what, spend a week in jail. You're going to see all kinds of mess. You're going to see fights. You're going to see rape. You're going to see shakedowns you're going to see abuse in many many ways something that thomas talks about in interviews since his incarceration is ptsd a side effect of all the things that he had been through with kate's experience this was the big question that i had for her explain to me how ptsd works PTSD is an ailment that is basically a combination of two major problems. One being anxiety, meaning your ability to measure danger is thrown off whack. You find danger in places that other people don't find it. And the other thing is memory. When something reminds you of that trauma, you are thrown back into that emotional state. Sometimes it becomes an episodic memory, a narrative memory that you have in your head and suddenly you're thinking through the whole movie and you can't stop it. Other times it's simply the feel, the emotions that you had. So you may not be thinking, you know, first this happened, then that happened, but you feel exactly the way that you did at the time because your body believes you are back there because something has triggered it. So it's always sort of comes in waves and flares up. And if you're lucky... You can change enough about your environment after the trauma has subsided. You can control enough in your life to minimize stressors and minimize your exposure to things that will trigger you. You learn what your triggers are and you start to control those, but it constricts your life quite a bit. And ultimately you end up around those things and it can throw you right back in that emotional state if you're not having a good day already. And then recovering it can take a while. And you can also come such a long way through therapy and through gradually and in a controlled and careful way dealing with your triggers, learning what they are and learning how to more accurately assess how dangerous they really are in the moment and learning how to process them and function through. And over time, you can get better and you can get to the point where... 
you get years past it and you can be somehow thrown in exactly the same situation as your trauma, but get through it sort of by the skin of your teeth, but you can get through it because you'd learn some coping mechanisms for that. And the problem is that once your limbic system, part of your body and brain that react to danger, you, so you, there's, it's part of your, your hypothalamus, it's part of your, chunks of your brain glands all over your body. That's to get technical. And once you become prone to a traumatic stress reaction, you can have it again real easy. And I'm going to be coming back to England. Well, I'm going to be coming back to Wales to see an expert in Wales and go through the therapy uh, that I'd have to be there for a period of, uh, of a week approximately and to eliminate some of my problems. Well, it's only some of my problems, but to eliminate the ongoing memory that I have. It's a vivid memory of 20 years ago. I remember each detail, something that you don't understand, something that you can't understand. 20 years ago, what did you do? Can you remember what you did, what day it was and everything? You can't. I can. Wrongfully convicted people can because they have a mental block, something that's not filtering through and putting away. I have it in my head. It's, a re it's constantly there. I constantly remember it. I'm coming back to England after my inquiry because I was told my judicial inquiry as to what went wrong in the justice system, what went wrong in the police investigation, will help me and be able to help me a great deal, but it's not going to eliminate it. I'm coming back here to help me. So Thomas Sofino is completely exonerated, and everyone is very aware that we have not found the killer of Barbara Stoppel. At that point, all we found was another victim. I just wanted now to take a moment to thank Kate so much for helping me field through the type of things that someone in Thomas Sofno's position is going to go through. You know, what I would say is thanks so much for having me on. It was so fun. And if people want to listen to me babble more, I am at IWB Podcast. But my show is Ignorance Was Bliss. And, you know, come play. If you get a chance to check out Kate's show, make sure you head over there. It's going to blow your mind. You can't unhear it, though. So if you get a chance, please rate and review on iTunes because, you know, it's the secret way of getting the podcast into the ears of other people. And have a great week. I'm going to be back very soon with the final episode, episode three where we're going to try and talk about who actually did murder Barbara Stoppel. <laughs>